What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Pass. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm Brennan Store. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 174. And we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm enjoying the uh, spooky time of year and indulging myself in a variety of quality films and uh, generally trying to uh, find something that will frighten me. How's that going so far? Evil Dead Rise. Um, <laughs> maybe jump a couple of times. Yep. Um, finishing the, the fall of the house of Usher was uh, very enjoyable as well. Thoroughly enjoyed that. So, oh, okay. yes, we're getting there. Really good. Very cool. I uh, TV-wise, I, I just am about a third of the way through the Goosebumps series mm. on, on Disney+, Plus, which is not usually my jam, but I, I started watching it on the treadmill. It's fun TV. Although I got to say, uh, the notion that all the Goosebumps stories are happening in one small town, the people who live in Twin Peaks look at this town and go, boy, <laughs> you guys have it bad. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I am, I am very well, and I'm going to tell you why. I finally got a water filter for my fridge. You might think, Bren, this is not new technology. We've been filtering water for a while. What's the deal? Of course, I'm in London, Ontario now, and the water here tastes roughly like hobo piss filtered through a jockstrap. Mm. It is the worst, or at least in my building, it is the worst. It had this, this terrible musty smell to it. Especially the cold water. The hot water's not as bad, but the cold water had this really gross, horrible. And I, I, my friends told me, you're going to want to get a, a Brita filter or something like that. And I thought, ah, I've never needed one of those before. I'm sure it's fine. And then I drank a couple glasses of this, this terrible, uh, yeah, well, the way, the way I described this is accurate. Uh, and yeah, I was sold. And so I, I finally got a, uh, one of these filters. Although I will say, the very first time I, I used it, because I got, because I, you know, I, I can't do th- these things halfway. I got the enormous one. So it just, it takes up, you know, roughly a third of the top shelf of my fridge, but then I always <laughs> have cold water. However, what I didn't clue into was the fact that if you're going to put it in there, you got to put it right at the back of the fridge because otherwise the door, the shelves on the door will very gently hold the spigot open and you will wake up to a very chilly lake in your fridge, mm. which is what I did. Ah, so, are you sure it was water? Well, I mean, if it was ectoplasm, I'm never going to know because I just mopped it up with a paper towel and threw it away. There's going to be one oh. really pissed off ghost in my apartment going, come on, guy, come on. <laughs> Throwing you a bone here. Yeah. Oh, well, nothing that it does here is going to be any more frightening than anything I've seen happening outside. So 
That's fine. Okay, I told you I took a walk for the first time out of my neighborhood because I was kind of advised like, yeah, maybe don't do that, especially at night. But I thought, well, you know, there's parts, of the, there's pockets that look fine. So I, I walked from my neighborhood over to the, this place called Wortley, which is this nice little neighborhood about half hour or 40 minutes away. And yeah, it was fine, it, I, except for this one little, like, I, I described it to you as sort of a liminal patch. There's just this little patch of about a kilometer that's mostly uh, industrial businesses and a rail corridor. Mm. And if, if there's anywhere I've lived that feels like, no, nah, but just about anything could happen here, it's that place. So I, I enjoyed my walk. Again, the neighborhood is colorful, but you know, you can get around. But that particular part of it, you know, it's, it's like with those movies where you, you, they don't let you go out of town because town is a simulation and you're actually, you know, the subject of some 1990s uh, virtual reality experiment. That's kind of what <laughs> that little boundary area feels like. Like, no, go back to your apartment. Well, you've got to be careful around our end. It's all very nice, but every so often you'll basically see a house that looks like it's just been ripped out of a horror film. Oh, really? Just randomly in the, on the street. There's a house behind where we live, which is incredibly spooky. And someone who lives in it, unfortunately, has a passing resemblance to a, to a serial killer. <laughs> so um, that's one of them. And there's, there's a few of them just dot, randomly dotted around houses that you think, mm, I mean, that's, that's something strange there. Judging from the stories you've told me about Sheffield, Paul, I feel like, yeah, there is something strange going on there. I feel like something strange is just behind every third door in that place. <laughs> Maybe false. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's, uh, sorry. I was being dramatic there. <laughs> Speaking of dramatic, this episode is a follow-up to one we've done recently. And uh, it, usually we, it would take a while for us to do a, you know, a sequel episode, right? I think the first responders episode we just did, I think it took about four years to do a sequel. <laughs> uh, but we're actually going to be doing two follow-ups to the haunting in the military episode, this episode, and then there's going to be one more after it. And that's because... Following on from that episode, we got a lot of email from people who had been in the military or who had uh, family or friends who had, and they gave us some really interesting leads. And then we were recently sent in a story that sort of cemented it for me. And that is going to be the story we finish with tonight. You and I are going to take turns reading that one. It's quite lengthy. I've never heard anything quite like it. And uh, for those of you who are sensitive to violence, and, and we'll mention this again when, the, when, the, when it happens. It is a very violent story. You know, it, 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 maybe the story itself isn't violent, but it deals with the aftermath of violence. It, it, it is from a listener who was a medic in Afghanistan, so it deals with medical procedures and things like this. So again, it, it's intense, but I think there's enough imagery there, and I think there's enough meat there that it's worth wading through that. But again, we'll do a content warning just before that story starts. But again, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. For now, this is going to be Haunting in the Military Part 2, The Man in the Chair. But before we can tell those stories, we have to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you are the first half of Full Metal Jacket to our second half. Which is to say, without you, no one would even know we exist. <laughs> and while we'd like to thank all our patrons, right now we would like to thank our latest patrons. They are. Malevolent Clamato. <laughs> they said that one was just for you. They sent me a note. I gathered that. Yes. Janet Kovacevic. Cordes Tarantino. Estelle Ross. Catherine Eschler. Shaddix. Ethany Michon. Caitlin Park. Dav Cryptes. 
Oh, that must be Cryptes, the uh, the T-shirt, the designer. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah, check out Cryptes. Cryptes are awesome. Fabulous stuff. Logan LaCapria. Sarah Hanlon. Guys, thank you so, so, so much. We cannot make this show without our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. And so to each and every one of you, I say thank you. Your support is deeply, deeply appreciated. And while we'll wait till the end of the show to tell you about all the cool stuff you get, we will say for a dollar a month, you get an ad-free feed. Head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. Or sign up to GSD Premium via Apple Podcasts, and you will get access to, again, ad-free feed, bonus shows, all kinds of cool stuff. We'll, we'll talk about that in the C segment. Again, that's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or GSD Premium via Apple Podcasts. We could not make this show without your support. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One last thing. Shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and musician Jerry Smith. You can find Rainy Days for Ghosts streaming everywhere. You get your tunes and you can find Jerry's other project, Street Witch, there as well. His latest EP, Haddonfield, which is of course a tribute to the Halloween films, is available now on Spotify and Apple Music. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And then it's time for more tales of haunting in the military. Building 2283, Kadena Air Force Base, from Jonathan. Before I get to my military experience, I have one other story I'd like to tell that will always stick with me. Most of my paranormal experiences have happened around dreams, either falling asleep or waking up. One summer, when I was in my teens, I dozed off in my bed which faces a window. I woke up, then found myself affected by full-on sleep paralysis. I couldn't move and remember making a weak, mewling sound as I tried to call out for help. Head, shoulders and two arms hovering in my second-story window. It was probably only a few seconds, but it felt like minutes were stretching by. One minute I was struggling against sleep paralysis, the next I violently tumbled off the bed. I've had several other sleep-related experiences, but I told you that to tell you about an experience where I was totally awake, so you know that I know the difference between a dreamlike state and a waking state. I was stationed at Kadena Air Base on Okinawa, Japan in 1993 and had an opportunity to visit Building 2283, one of the many strange places on that base. Ancestor worship is a major component of Okinawan culture and there are family tombs literally scattered around the base. Building 2283 was a family housing unit until the 1970s when, allegedly, a man killed his home family and then himself. After years of complaints about paranormal activity, and I believe one more murder, the Air Force turned it into storage. When I was there, it was used to store lawn equipment and old IT gear that wasn't quite ready for the scrap heap. A buddy of mine, Brian, told me that when he was in there, he heard children laughing and saw things moving. If I recall correctly, there was a childcare centre nearby but he claims it was on a swing shift in the middle of the night when he was there. Of course, being young and stupid, we all laughed at him, but he dared us to go in. Being young and even stupider, 
I took him up on his offer in exchange for some free drinks. So before we went downtown that night, we paid a visit to building 2283. It was a pretty unassuming building, in that it looked like all the other buildings around it, save for some security bars on the windows. Since his job required him to have regular access, he had a key and opened it for me. When I went in, man, all the idiots outside making boo noises went away. There was something oppressive in that house. I could feel it in my bones. It was summer, and the AC wasn't running this building, so you'd expect it to be hot and stuffy. But that house was cold. The hair on my arm stood on end, and I just stood there. My eyes water when I see paranormal activity, like on video or television, and my eyes were free-flowing. My buddy told me that people see shit in the kitchen, so of course I went there. Before I could flip on the light, though, I felt a blast of cold hair like I was in front of an air conditioner, and standing in front of the kitchen sink was what appeared to be a figure in a bathrobe. I ran out of there as fast as I could and told my friends what I had seen. Of course they just laughed, but Brian and I shared a look, and he just shook his head slightly. I learned later that people had reported seeing a woman washing her hair in the sink area, and I really think that's what I saw that night. I've heard they've since torn it down, but looking back I wish I'd gone back, if only to prove to myself what I'd seen. So thank you, Jonathan. And yeah, I, from what I was able to gather, that building was turned up or be torn down in 2009. But what's kind of interesting is I, I, the watering eyes thing sort of brought back something for me. And I realized I actually remember that from when I was a kid. I would have these weird dreams where my eyes were watering so much I couldn't open them. Mm. And it was usually accompanied by this bright white or yellow light. I don't, I, I don't remember any more than that. It just that sort of dug out this this weird old memory for me. Mm. Well, it, yeah. it, it struck me because... I'm trying. I'm, I think I remember correctly. I believe that's where Art Bell was stationed. Oh, was it? Mm. When he did his his tour of duty in the Air Force, I believe he was out there for quite a while in Okinawa. Interesting. Well, it's got a very very storied history of haunting. I mean, we probably could have done a whole episode just on Kadena. I mean, it would have been a bit samey after a while, but um, that site, especially building, uh, is it twenty two eighty three? is so well known. Yeah. Uh, I found this article on um, Stars and Stripes, and basically they said that uh, there have been times where they would do tours, and there was one time where there were about 30 people gathered in the backyard to hear the tour guide give the like the spooky stories, and the phone in the house started ringing. <laughs> and the, the tour guide, her name was April Marling, she actually said that as far as she knew, there was no phone line connected there. It was not something done to like enhance the spookiness of the tour. It was just all of a sudden. <laughs> now it sounds like now it sounds creepy. <laughs> and I guess uh, there was another tour in 1990 where uh, a, a tour group saw a curtain open right in front of them. <laughs> and I guess that was the end of the tour. Everyone, everyone was done. Everyone wanted to go home after that. <laughs> and I, I seem to recall reading somewhere that there is some, some thought that uh, this was a site of a murder. Yeah, this building, but there doesn't seem to be any any sort of um, official history yeah. to back that up. And I think it was We Are the Mighty did an article on this, and they reached out to the military, and I don't think they ever got a response about it. Mm. 
Oh, I, I can see why they wouldn't want to have a real in-depth conversation about, you know, a family murder on one of their bases. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's not... Well, to be fair, there is, there is always a high level of, of tension running in military bases anyway. You know, you have got some highly strong people in all parts of the armed forces. So it wouldn't be the first base where a, where a tragedy has occurred, unfortunately. Oh, is that, is that something you've heard before? Yeah, we've had a few here. We've had a, a, a spate of alleged suicides here on a particular base, which um, is leaving people deeply suspicious, shall we say. Oh, interesting. So that, that's ongoing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yikes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those where um, some of the people couldn't possibly have killed themselves in the way that the official narrative has said. Kind of like a, like a he shot himself five times in the head kind of thing. Yeah, or they used a particular rifle and their reach wasn't long enough to position it in the, the way that the wounds have been discovered. So uh, the families are not... Are we sure Courtney Love didn't kill them? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, just looking back at my notes, I, I made a mistake. It was actually Stars and Stripes, not We Are the Mighty who reached out to uh, the military regarding w- the uh, murder at Kadena and never heard back. Mm. Um, but apparently th- there was a, a, an interview with a guide, uh, Setsuko Inafuku. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. My apologies. This woman was saying that they think many sites on the island were built on or near ancient burial grounds. And they think that they apparently, because apparently the Okinawan culture is very, uh, very, very, very spiritual. Mm-hmm. I guess ancestor worship is a big part of it. Yeah, yes, it is. And so, yeah, they so they really believe these sites are sacred, and they believe that if you build on them, you are pissing off these these ancestors, these these spirits. Uh, supposedly, they're according to the same guide. City officials believe a tomb across the street from that haunted house belonged to an Okinawan samurai warrior. Uh, whether or not, you know, samurai ghosts are particularly angry is not specified. But supposedly there are stories on the base of seeing a, a spectral samurai. Mm. Which would be goddamn terrifying. Yes. Yes, it would. Imagine that. You're just minding your own business. You're sneaking a smoke, you know, away from the missus. <laughs> and all of a sudden you just see Toshiro Mifun riding through on a horse. <laughs> it's like those two chaps who were attacked by Spring-Heeled Jack in uh, Aldershot Barracks in the 1880s. I actually don't know this story. I know Spring Hill Jack, but I, I don't know this particular encounter. Yeah, there was um, a, an incident where sentries were assaulted by uh, what they claimed was, was Spring Hill Jack, who was basically sat on top of their sentry box uh, and uh, causing mischief and attack, scratching them and, uh, and ran off and hopped off laughing manically, disappearing into the woods. And it happened on two occasions, I think. Um, and they were convinced it was Spring-Heeled Jack because it, it's the kind of situation where you think, well, perhaps it was a hoax. But then again, you're talking about somebody assaulting two armed sentries. So I think if they'd had the opportunity, they'd have probably shot him up the ass. <laughs> it does seem like a dangerous hobby. Mm. Or stupid. Well, yeah, or, or stupid. Yeah, or both. Could be both. Yeah, yeah. So I like the, uh, the person in Sheffield in the, um, was it the 1850s? Somebody up here tried to pretend they were spring Jack and got cornered by a group of locals and, and uh, got leathered. <laughs> oh, that city never fails to deliver. <laughs> Just around the corner from um, where I am, actually. Graves Park. Naturally. Naturally. I, actually, I, I think we, we might have some listeners who don't know 
who or what Spring Hill Jack was. Do you mind quickly giving them a refresher? Yes, so Spring Hill Jack was a terror of Victorian London who appeared, I think, about 1830s and was notable for attacking people, sometimes in the street, sometimes he would be cheeky enough to knock on their doors and as they opened it, he would scratch at them. He had a penchant for attacking young women. Witnesses claimed, and there's some confusion about this, they're not sure if it was artistic license by the reporters or the witness, but one particular witness who survived one of the assaults claimed that he'd shot blue flames into her face. Um, I've heard the blue flame thing. That was, that was something I, I briefly recall being associated with Spring Hill Jack, and I thought it was interesting because so many other high strangeness encounters involved blue flame. Mm. So there was that. Um, people described him looking like he was wearing sort of oil skins and strange, a strange helmet and had sharp talons and bounced away as though he was like a, a, a human kangaroo hybrid. Imagine that mating session. <laughs> well, not going on the latest videos I've seen from Australia, the last thing you want to be doing is getting amorous with a kangaroo. I just imagine some guy just covered with hockey pads and Sears catalogs. Anyways, let's not dwell on this. It's like that guy who invented that bear-proof suit. <laughs> now you know why he did it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I, had a, I was talking to Chris from Genki Genki Panic via email the other day, and he mentioned he, he listens to the show and you know quite often in the car with his kids, and he said, thanks for keeping the show clean. So, sorry, Chris. I screwed that up. Educational. Yes. Yes. You learned what podcasts not to listen to, kids. That's what you <laughs> learned today. <laughs> More haunting on Kadena. If you look up Kadena Air Base in Okinawa, you'll find a lot of stories about haunting and paranormal activity happening around the base. My whole family, aside from my dad, who is rarely home, experienced very odd and paranormal things in our house and we were told stories from our neighbor as well. I was a really young kid when we lived there, say around six to eight, but my memory is fairly clear about some of the things that happened to me. When we lived there, we would tell my mom about all of the experiences we were having, and she would dismiss them. Finally, when we moved away, she told us her own experiences and said she didn't want to scare us at the time. I thought I would finally write some of these down. They're going to be jumbled and disorganized. Firstly, I had a neighbor girl I was friends with who told me she would speak to other little girls through the air conditioning vents, and she would drop coins and little keychains down into the ducts for them. Along those same lines, my older sister once saw a black, gooey mass ooze from one of the vents at a neighbor's house she was babysitting for. The girls she watched would also hold loud conversations in their bedrooms and would play with their friends in the walls during their bedtime. I was playing with dolls once in my shared bedroom with the door shut. I remember the doorknob kept twisting and opening every few minutes, and I just told it to stop, and it did. On another occasion, I noticed one of my stuffed animals missing, and my mom has thrown it away. Apparently, I told my mom that the plushie was whispering to me, and I wasn't sleeping because of it. I don't remember any of that, though. My older sister and I shared a bedroom with bunk beds, but we both slept in the bottom bunk together because there was just an odd presence in the top bunk, and that creeped us both out. We all expressed feeling extremely uncomfortable walking up or down the stairs like something was watching us. Even my mom admitted to sprinting up and down and constantly checking behind her for eyes. My little sister had her own bedroom, and her toys would constantly go off at night, even if they were turned off. My mom told us when we were older 
that my toddler sister and her were laying down for a nap, and she heard something in the room say, I love you, mommy. Confused, my mom said, I love you too. But my sister said, Who is that? Or something along those lines. My older sister and I weren't home. We were playing at a friend's house at the time. There's something about children who say that they're talking to people who live in air vents or the walls that always <laughs> raises the hairs on the back of my neck. No. Um, no. No, no, thank you. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I second that. Again, it's not, I, I, maybe it's just because horror movies have conditioned us, but Whenever kids say things like that, it just adds that extra little bit of that extra little bit of horror, extra little bit of terror, because you're thinking you you shouldn't know this, you shouldn't know. And and I got to figure if he's an enterprising kid or she's an enterprising kid, maybe they're using that, you know. Like obviously this this really shits shits up dad when I talk about the kids in the walls, <laughs> and uh, he takes us out to get ice cream, so we're not in the house as much. So we'll just tell him a little bit more about the. You know, this is basically how the blue avians were born. <laughs> well, it always reminds me of that um, that meme of somebody saying, "Was it their niece? Her niece said said to her, uh, the the people in the wall don't like you.'" Uh, and somebody replied and said, "Well, you need to try try harder then to impress the people who live in the wall." Yeah. What you need to figure out what you have to do to become someone the wall people are proud of. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Who are the wall people? Right. I bet they ask themselves that when they're having a bad day. Like me, trying to figure out why I can't get the audio to sound the way I wanted to tonight. <laughs> why? Who are the wall people? Why are the wall yeah. people? Never mind what. Why are the wall people? Who? Why? What? Where? When? How are the wall people? No one asks how. No one expects the wall people. <laughs> I would say that is a factually accurate statement. No one expects the wall people. All right, so we have one more story from Kadena, and I thought instead of doing that as a separate segment, uh, we, I just have you read that one here. What do you think? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. Shadows on Kadena. From the end of fifth grade till the end of eighth grade, which was about 2002 to 2005, I lived on Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa, Japan. There's no other way to say this. The house where we lived was fucking haunted. Keep in mind whilst you're reading, the Battle of Okinawa was one of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific during World War II, and its current population is about 1.4 million. The island is 70 miles long in length, and averages 7 miles in width. Paranormal experience I want to share with you happened in my bedroom. In there was a mirror which I could see myself if I faced a certain way. As I was trying to go to bed one night, I suddenly felt like something was watching me. And at that moment, I felt an incredible amount of fear. My heart was beating out of my chest, and with a quick glimpse in the mirror, as I was laying on the bed, there was a tall, shadowy figure in the shape of a man. But this man had no face, and he was standing directly over me. The shadowy figure wasn't a solid human shape, but rather looked like it had an all-black robe on with wisps of black smoke coming from its body. The moment I saw the figure I was frozen with fear, but I managed to put a blanket over my head, and I stayed under the sheets for what seemed like forever, and eventually mustered up the courage to peek into the mirror to see if the shadowy figure was still looking at me. I lifted up the sheet, and with one eye peeked into the mirror, and in the mirror I saw that the figure had moved even closer to me than before. Again I retreated under the sheets. After a few minutes of staying absolutely stock still, I started to hear 
Knock. 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 From my closet door. Once that happened, I said fuck it, and sprinted to my parents' bedroom and jumped into their bed. I was in the eighth grade and my dad was in the army, so his reaction was a little bit, what the hell are you doing? He told me to go back to my room and I absolutely refused. My mum believed me and showed me some pity and allowed me to sleep in their bed that night. My dad was stationed back to the States about two months later, but I'll never forget that night in Okinawa. I tell you, Dad, I don't care what you say. If there is suddenly knocking in my closet, not only am I not going back to my room, I am out of this house forever. <laughs> I'm going to pack up my, my hobo stick and I will, I will seek my fortune out on the rails. There is no way in hell I am going back into a room where something has knocked from the closet. Yeah, it's all happening there, isn't it? We've got shadowy people, glimpses of strange creatures in mirrors, the paranormal protection of a child's blanket, and then we've got a haunted closet jumping in, as well as... Dad being a dick. It's all happening. <laughs> That's true, yeah. I forgot. Yeah, we got we got Dick Dad in there too. We got it really it's it's sort of like the, the, the ghost story guy's bingo card. <laughs> Alone at Isleson Air Force Base from Ashley. This story takes place in the interior of Alaska during the winter, so it's hella cold and hella dark. I was only sixteen years old and driving home for my closing shift at Blockbuster between midnight and one. At the time, my dad was active duty, and we were living on Isleson Air Force Base. After getting through the base front gate, I got to the four-way stop that was located near the flight line. At the stop sign, I noticed a figure to my right. I couldn't make out any specific features besides his attire. He was wearing a thick parka with a fur-lined hood up over his head. Since he was standing by the stop sign, I immediately thought, oh, he's just wanting to cross the street. When there are pedestrians across in front of me, I usually try not to be a creep and watch them as they make their way to the other side. Hooray for social anxiety. So when I saw the figure to the right, I stayed at the stop sign and glanced down at my MP3 player as I was waiting for him to cross the street. Seconds go by and I begin to think, why hasn't he crossed yet? Do I need to do that whole go ahead and cross hand gesture? I looked up and found nobody there. I glanced around, shrugged my shoulders, slowly pressed the gas and continued home. As I was driving, I began to really analyze that experience, and it started to make little sense. As I stated before, this is during the winter, around midnight on a military installation. In reality, there should not be anybody out and about. Winters in the interior of Alaska are cold as hell. No sane person is wandering around when it's minus 30 to minus 60 Fahrenheit. Mind you, that was near a flight line. There are no large trees or any sort of big structures. Definitely no place for a person to hide behind. By the time I pulled in the driveway, I was baffled. Enlisted military are issued large parkas for the winter, but also large parkas are worn by the Alaskan natives. I've always wondered what spirit I came across that night. I don't know what spirit it was, Paul, but I bet that spirit was fucking cold. <laughs> so cold, freeze your ectoplasm. Telling you. I, isn't it like um, after zero Fahrenheit and Celsius are more or less the same? Uh, they, they catch up pretty quick, yeah. Yeah, because I was going to say, I, I went outside last year in Montreal at minus 24, and that was, to put it, just to, to put it simply, very cold. I cannot imagine toddling around in minus, I think I got a minus 35 when I was there. But I, on the day it hit that low, I refused to leave my apartment. I just played PlayStation all day. Mm. 
ran around sunny Greece in the whatever century in Assassin's Creed. <laughs> I was not going outside. And the thought of just, yeah, just lumbering around a minus 60? No. The coldest I've ever experienced was, was about minus 14 here when we got hit by what became known as the beast from the east. We got a Siberian polar blast land on us for three weeks. It was unbelievable. I was going to say Beast from the East. I think it's an Iron Maiden live album. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was that was really, really cold. Like, the kind of cold that makes your bones ache. You know, I used to be better with cold, uh, but living on the East Coast, man, it made me, or sorry, on the West Coast in Victoria, it made me soft. Because, you know, I, I think it, the most we would see there is like minus six, maybe minus 10. Mm -hmm. And because uh, I, I used to be that guy... Admittedly, I wasn't quite as bad as some guys who wander around, you know, in minus 30 wearing shorts going, oh, is it cold? I'm not cold. You know, <laughs> I'm not that guy. But I used to have a much greater resistance to these kinds of things. But as I say, living on the West Coast, man, just softened me right up. Yeah, we had a really bad one in the, at the beginning of the 80s. I don't remember anything about it, but I've seen programs about it saying how bad it was and, and certain communities were completely cut off. They had to fly-in supplies and all sorts. Really? In England? Yeah. Holy Christ. I think it was winter 81 into 82, and it just snowed and ice and rain, and it was just crap for months. Oh, man. And back in those days, obviously, a lot of places over here didn't have central eating or double glazing or anything. I don't remember anything about it. It just, fr the memories literally froze out that part of your brain. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah. Watching yeah. it, I'm like, no, I don't remember any of this. <laughs> at all i mean it's hard to believe now because i mean revelstoke gets snow but not, not like it did mm. and, and i remember jesus you know there were times where um like you would you would look outside and it, it would just be from our wind our kitchen window it, as high as the window all the way across to my aunt's house on the corner so that we're talking you know 50 feet or something and it was just yeah it was all all just chest high snow. I remember uh, our pipes froze, which, you know, would happen quite a bit in the winter if you weren't cautious, uh, which is sort of wild, right? Because most places now, or I shouldn't say most, a lot of places have metered water. You know, your, your usage is metered and you're, you're based, you're, pardon me, you're charged accordingly. But in, in places like Revelstoke, you can't do that because you have to let the cold water run in the winter. Otherwise, the pipes freeze. And I remember the year our pipes froze, we basically for any kind of water, my aunt had to walk a hose from her outside tap all the way to our kitchen and feed it in through the window. And again, there was so much snow back then, you could literally just like belly crawl out the kitchen window, <laughs> walk across the yard to the, to the, uh, the tap and, and do your thing over there. It was, again, it was, it was a wild time. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's nowhere near as, as common as it used to be. I remember being a kid growing up when it snowed every winter and... Over the last 30 years, I can probably count five bad snowfalls. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, we got a snowfall at the end of February this year, which came from absolutely nowhere. Five years ago, it was snowing in April, Easter Monday. So it just, no, I've no idea what's happening anymore. Just before we move on, I found a couple other just very little brief snippets from people who worked on Eielson. Uh So this one fellow said... Uh, <laughs> It, I mean, he, he didn't really beat around the bush. He said it was creepy as shit. He said um, some of it was just some of it was just old buildings that were heated with steam. So you know, all winter long, you'd hear random banging in the walls, ceilings, and floors from pipes. 
Uh, but he said, then you'd walk around at night and you'd heard what sound like people running down the hall. And he said that was less explainable by steam in the pipes. Someone else said that after working at Isleson for four years, they said that there are some tunnels under what's called Amber Hall that are very creepy. They didn't really expand on it. But I, I feel like um, whenever you're talking about tunnels, just the underground of it all makes it a thousand times creepier. Yeah. Tunnels in Alaska are not something I ever want to experience. Thank you very much. Funny enough, I was, I was cruising around the internet a couple of days ago, and I, I found this series of posts about underground tunnels in Victoria. And this is one of the great debates of Victoria. People love to argue about whether or not there is a, a network of tunnels underneath the city. And the short answer is no, there are not. There are a handful of accessible storm drains, which you know are you can walk around in, mm -hmm. but you run, you know, they're not super safe and they don't go anywhere. Mm. You know, there were some tunnels that connected one or two stores downtown. There used to be shipping tunnels that connected the harbor to a couple things, but those have all been sealed off over the years. And I'd say most of them, they, they weren't they weren't dramatic. It wasn't like um like LA. Mm. There are miles of tunnels that run underneath the city. You can actually get into them yourself if you go to the Hall of Records and you or at least you used to be able to. You could go to the Hall of Records, and if you knew where to look, you could get into them. Actually, They Live was filmed partially down there. But Victoria doesn't have that. But for years, people, they would just, partially, I think, spurred on by the whole Michelle Remembers thing. People love to argue that, no, there is, in fact, I know a guy. I know a guy who was down there. There is a huge network of tunnels, and there's you know Satanists who do writ, blah, blah, horseshit, horseshit, horseshit. And again, people just are obsessed with tunnels. Yeah, we've got a, a phenomenal one underneath Sheffield called the Megatron. The Megatron? The Megatron, yeah. It's uh, an old Victorian culvert system, and it's essentially like an underground cathedral. Wow, okay. Uh, for all that, it's, it's basically a, a, an overflow and storm drain system uh, that was built about 175 years ago. It's incredible. You can do tours of it. Really? Have, have you done it? No. <laughs> Not yet. You go see a movie in a cave, but not take the underground tunnel tour. No, I think you can only go, obviously, certain times of the year. So uh, it is something I'd like to do, I have to say. I, I've heard the, uh, the, the Seattle underground tour is a lot of fun. I haven't done it myself, but I've heard good things. Yes, yeah, there was, a, was there an episode of Coles Jack filmed there about that? Is that in Seattle? You know, that sounds right. I haven't finished watching all of Coles Jack yet, but I, I, that, sounds, that sounds accurate. There was one about somebody living underneath. I think it was Seattle. And there was a, was it a vampire or something living underneath? It was Kolchak, probably a vampire of some description. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, I mean, I have been in a flooded tin mine in the Peak District, Speedwell Cavern. You can catch a, a boat uh, and, and go into the, uh, into the flooded tin mine there, which is, um, which is about 200, 300 metres underground. I mean, I probably think I know the answer to this, but why? Why, why would anyone do that? Why not? What's the it's underground. The There's water. <laughs> I don't know that we need any more reason than this. Yeah, it's only about, it's, you have to be careful as well. Um, you know, you haven't got much headroom there either. You've all got to wear your hard hats and stuff. And uh, yeah, you've probably got about, from where you sat in the boat, you've probably got about, I don't know, four or five foot when you hit the roof. No, no. Like caves, bad. Water, bad. Combine these things together, the, the, the two wrongs making a right thing does not apply. Hmm. No, I found it, it was cold, but interesting. Fascinating. It just seems like nightmare fuel to me.
the goat man at Fairchild Air Force Base. I was at Fairchild for seven years, so I heard many stories. As for the goatman, I was told by the SERE, the Survival Evasion Resistance Escape Guys, that they had encountered a goat-looking humanoid about five to six foot tall in the woods that surrounded Spokane and the FFB. Supposedly, at one point way, a K-9 cop got dispatched because a perimeter alarm sounded on the SER side at like 2am. He was out there following up along the fence in the dark when his dog went completely nuts. It ran into the bushes, the cot heard a whimper, and then saw, through the light of his flashlight, the goat man carrying his canine away. I was with the 92nd SPS from June 85 through to July 87. Our visitor, who was called the goat man, was quite a ghost. The nuclear storage area had several sensors outside the secure fence, just inside the 30-foot clear zone. On a few occasions, I was in the tower with the operator. The sensors started to activate in an entry pattern. When they do that, the camera activates and shows a black and white picture of the area. When the camera activated, we, there were three of us in the tower at the time, saw a black figure starting to climb the fence. My team member and I hauled ass from the tower and raced to the area. A nuclear storage area or a weapons storage area, WSA as we called it, because we could not officially say nukes, is a big patch of land, normally with a conventional storage area, or a CSA located right next to it. As we got to the intrusion area, the tower operator immediately notified us that he'd received an exit activation in a direct line from the entry point, right straight across the entire WSA. I saw the thing as it started to climb the fence, I swear it turned round and looked right at us, not just the camera, but right at us. It was always a running joke with us. The goat man, but those who have seen it, or been around someone who had seen it, know better. Needless to say, this thing scared the hell out of me. The first time I saw it, it was raining, and I was on a midnight shift. Jim and I were parked next to a nuke structure barn door. Our vehicle was parked as close to the door as we could be. My side, which was the passenger side, was just inches from the door, so I couldn't exit the vehicle, if you can imagine that. And to see this thing between two bunkers, inside the WSA, running towards me, I was scared and I'm sure it showed, because like I say, they activated every light in the area, calling all team members out to conduct a search. If Jim had not been there right beside me when I saw it, I don't think anyone would have thought too much of it. But when he told the CSC I was new and this was my first night in the area, they made sure there were no exercises being conducted and then called for radio silence while the entire fire team searched the area. Grid pattern, top to bottom and side to side. It took the better part of two hours to do so, too. I say no to the goat man, whatever it is. Well, what I think is really interesting about this one, aside from just, yeah, no on the goat man, is the, the presence of... Uh, nuclear weapons essentially yes because it, it really kind of takes me back to that uh show we were talking about on netflix um encounters mm -hmm. and there was that episode with where they talked to uh this part me they were dealing with the nuclear fallout from the fukushima disaster and there's some people who claimed to see ufo activity in or around the presence of nuclear sites 
And I was kind of curious to know where you kind of came down on that. Well, there's, there's numerous UFO encounters over alleged military bases hosting nuclear weapons. I mean, Robert Salas is probably the most famous exponent of, of this particular theory, having been on a base where the nukes were turned off. I know there are stories that Paul Stonehill, who's a Russian ufologist, has uncovered from the uh, from the Cold War era where Russian bases were also targeted and uh, neutralised for a period. There's plenty of them out there if you look for them, not necessarily in regards to paranormal activity. I know there are a couple of, of stories in regards to people being maimed in, in silos and, and then that area becoming haunted again. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a long history of, of strange lights being seen. I know there are a few cryptid stories from some of the lower 48 as well. Of uh, I know there's a sighting of a Bigfoot in New Mexico, I think it is, that was hanging around a, a missile testing area quite a bit. Plenty of people saw that. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised, to be honest, but obviously with it being the goat man, um, who knows? I know there are a couple of... Um, States that claim the Goatman as their one of their cryptids. Oh, really? I didn't realize the Goatman was something that had turned up in other places. Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm trying to think if it's if it's Illinois or Wisconsin. There is there is a Goatman somewhere. I mean, there's a Goatman Bridge, isn't there? Well, whereabouts? Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, the Goatman Bridge is is notorious because it's an actual railway bridge that is still in service, and people have been killed on that bridge looking for the Goatman because they seem unaware that train tracks usually mean a train and have been either run over by the train or have thrown themselves off the bridge to avoid the train and died that way. Right. Oh, uh, Brandon just did a show on this, right? Yeah, there's one down there as well, I think. Yeah, I, 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 one of his, because um, he's doing that, that uh, series of shorts on, like leading up to Halloween, and I feel like he just did something about... I, I, about at least it was about a train bridge that uh, some particularly unclever folks have gotten themselves hurt uh, futzing around on. But I, could, I is it, was it a goat man? Yeah, goat. I think goat man bridges in Texas. Okay, I'm just trying to. Oh, you know what? It, it was the. Uh, this was not a ghost train. It was the ghost. Pardon me. This was not a goat man. This was the ghost train of Iridel County. It was the Boston Bridge, and he was saying he he actually specifically mentions at the end of the episode if you're going to hunt for this thing, if you want to see the ghost train. Don't do it on the bridge. And he said, this is not out of some kind of woo-woo reason. This is because trains still run on that bridge and people have been killed. And again, it never ceases to amaze me how many people will screw around on train tracks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Happens all the time. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I grew up across from a train yard, same, same as you. And it just, you know, we were taught from an early age respect for the trains. We were taught respect for the bears, respect for the trains. Be aware of the things that are bigger than you and will whoop your ass. That was sort of the, the central tenet of most of what we were taught. Mm, yeah. I had a childhood friend killed playing about on a, on a disused train line. Oh, God. Were they struck, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, they were crushed oh. by a carriage door because it was an old coal. Was it an old coal carriage? So there were really big, heavy doors and the door slipped and crushed him against the... Uh, the other side of the door frame. Oh my God, that's horrific. Yeah, it was only about 10, I think. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yikes. That, mm. uh, so uh, it is strange. I mean, we used to knock about a lot when we were kids because when you're a teenager, you're kind of that stuck age that you 
you're too old to be sat at home and you're too young to be out enjoying yourself in pubs and stuff. So you're kind of in that that twilight world of mid-teens where you're just lost. And it was the only place where you could stand and it would be pretty quiet. Nobody would really bother you. <laughs> you could just hang around with your friends and smoke cigarettes and, and, uh, and talk crap. So you pretty you pretty quickly got your head around. You can hear a train coming a long way away right. if you know what to listen for. Um, but we used to do stupid things like put coins on the track so the train would flatten them. And then we go, oh, look, I've got to flatten one pence. <laughs> I think that's a time-honored kind of- time tradition. <laughs> Although we were discouraged from that because we were told that the coin would fire out like a bullet and kill someone. <laughs> we did not have a real strong grasp of physics in Revelstoke. Yes. So, um, yeah, always have a healthy respect for uh, for trains and train tracks. You've always got to have your wits about it. It's, um, I mean, it's, it baffles me. We see it all the time here. There's always videos shown on the news here of, People driving across level crossings when the bridges have come down or trying to run through them. People stopping on the tracks, taking pictures. He's like, what are you doing? Oh, I mean, there was that time a couple of years ago when my cousin was not well in Vancouver. And uh, once he was feeling a little bit better, I would, you know, we would go for drives. And there was that one night we were out for a drive. And I want to say Langley, Langley or New Westminster, one of the two. And uh, the train crossing guards, like the arms came down after we had crossed one of them so we were in the middle and this massive freight train was coming and i tell you man that thing passed probably within 15 feet of us and the force of it the the, the ground shakes it's terrifying and I'll, I'll never forget the feeling of well the arms are coming down what do we do mm. and mother of mm. mercy yeah uh, mike and i i think you know in our final moments there will be nothing that uh, God or his devils can throw at us that will be this, anywhere near as frightening as that train. Mm, mm. On a lighter note, one of the greatest ever clips on YouTube is a, uh, is a travel vlogger who stood next to a train track somewhere in, uh, in Asia and quite why the train driver takes a dislike to him. But as the train passes him, the train driver sticks his foot out and just kicks him in the head. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't Bang. laugh, but I will. <laughs> that's rough <laughs> have that you vlogger I love how that's almost an epithet vlogger you vine star poo <laughs> great it's great fun alright so this is our last story of the night it is a really long story that's, that's why I know you're thinking well, already but no trust me this is, this is a lengthy story um, and uh, I want to preface this with a content warning. We've talked about this before. Some folks have really kind of uh, asked for us to do this. And this, I would say, is a story that definitely earns that, uh, earns that necessity. So be aware, this story involves a combat medic on the ground in Afghanistan. It involves bodily injury and the things that are, are accompanied with, with such things. So if that is a sensitive issue for you, I would maybe skip ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, as always, I put in the show notes time codes for the various stories, and that should, should uh, help, you, help you navigate around. But this is a really great story. It's a very unique story, and it, it also makes a great lead-in because at some point this year, or possibly in, uh, early next, we're going to be doing a gin episode. 
And I do believe that is what is happening here, just to get out a bit ahead of it a bit. And I, and I believe the, uh, the listener who submitted this says this as well. Uh, and also, I want to shout out to Scary Stories NYC on YouTube, who often will listen to our stuff and comment, which we always appreciate. And um, they joked that this anonymous person sure is a busy guy with all the stories he writes. And uh, yes, yeah, we, our anonymous is very, very busy. And always remember, if you want to send us a story, but you don't want your name read out, we can have Mr. Anonymous take it on his big, broad shoulders, and he will do that for you. On the subject of content warnings, Paul, just before we get into this, I am about uh, 30% through Mike Brown's book. I can't remember what it's called, but uh, I picked it up on Audible, and I was listening to it the other day. I actually had to turn it off uh, because there was, there was a story in there that was so upsetting and it was graphic. The this descriptions of what, what happened in that case was, they were graphic. Uh, and man, I haven't been affected by something that viscerally in a very long time. I, you ever have that anymore? Do you, do you sometimes listen to, you listen to more true crime than I do. Do you ever find yourself affected by these things? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm glad I'm not desensitized to things. I can never deal well with anything that involves causing pain or or injury or death to children or old people or uh, particularly violent crimes against women and uh, animals. I'm 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 regardless of of um, what I listen and read. I I'm I I still find things quite shocking and frightening at times. Regardless, I just um, I don't know. I'm very good at being able to compartmentalize things, I think, and, and deal with them in the moment and try not to dwell on things. But yeah, I'm, I'm not desensitized to, to anything other than CGI monsters, I think. <laughs> Badly faked cryptid photographs. <laughs> People in a 200-pound Bigfoot suit sitting on a hill in Colorado, yeah. <laughs> That's my future uh, career plans you're making fun of there. <laughs> Go for it, mate. Embrace it. <laughs> uh, for anyone who is curious, if, if we do have any true crime fans out there, the book is uh, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem by Mike Brown. Mike, of course, host of the Dark Poutine podcast. If you like true crime, check it out. Just be aware there was some, some pretty graphic stuff in there. The, the chapter I'm reading is, I think, called Bad Apples. It's chapter five. And uh, yeah, it, Paul describes, you know, violence against children, violence against women. This features all of those things. And again, the detail is graphic. And it was, yeah, I actually, I started to, I, I thought I was getting sick. I started to feel hot all over. It was uh, very, very, I don't, I don't know that it's ever happened to me before, but it was so upsetting. I just kind of had to, I had to put it down. I don't usually do true crime for that reason, but because it's, uh, because it's Mike and, you know, Mike and I are. I mean, well, all of us, we, kind of, we all know each other now. It's, I thought, well, you know, so he listened to my book. I'd like to support him and listen to his. But uh, goddamn. Woof. All right. So this is your final warning. The upcoming story has some violent content, deals with combat medics and all the things that they have to face. So, uh, yes, if you have to skip ahead, totally cool. We will see you after the, after the story. And uh, otherwise, strap in. Because this story is called The Man in the Chair, a Jinn in Afghanistan, from Anonymous. I have never actually witnessed anything strange 
But there are one or two experiences in my life I can't explain. And one of them was when I was on active duty. I was, and am, though no longer active duty, a Navy corpsman, like a combat medic for you non-military types, and I went to Afghanistan with the Marines multiple times. The very last time I went, in 2012, is the most out there, near actual battle I ever went. I am a cis female human, so although the military is progressive, female corpsmen still don't go to the front lines with infantry, as it were. At least not back then. This small forward operating base, or FOB, pronounced as in KIFOB, consisted of our medical area, called an STP slash FRSS, which stands for Shock Trauma Platoon slash Forward Resuscitative Surgical Service, which was three large tents combined and configured in a Y shape, the two arms of the Y being small operating theaters. We slept in tents across a small courtyard. There was another tent for comms where radios and admin stuff was, but not as important to the story. Just outside the bottom of the Y, facing away from the sleeping tents, was a helopad type area, or LZ, a flat spot where we had gone out and picked up all the rocks that might kill or maim you if kicked up by the wind from the rotors. The dust-off crew, or medical transport crew, lived in a separate kind of shack about 50 yards away, and then there was a HIMARS unit, which are huge, long, expensive rockets that shoot off of the back of launchers attached to 10-ton trucks. This was past the peak of when Helmand Province was the hotspot, but it was still a shit show. HIMARS launched at all times of day, signal flares lighting up the night sky, and the intermittent, not-so-distant popping of rifles on burst. People were flown to us from within a certain radius to be stabilized before being sent onto the hospital in Bastion. Our patients were always real bad off, because if they were stable enough to make it to Leatherneck, which was probably about 20-30 miles away, they would just fly over us and get sent there. The patient population was largely made up of Afghans. The US military and other TTNs slash coalition forces were maybe two out of every ten patients who came through the door. The reasons for this are multifactorial, which I will not go into here. Politics. Some of the locals, or persons not in uniform, were enemy combatants technically, but more often than one would care to remember or think about, they were elderly men and women, mothers, children, and innocent people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mechanism of injury was gunshot wounds, blunt force trauma, pressure wave slash hollow organ injuries, and naturally secondary blast injuries from roadside bombs and even old landmines. Traumatic amputation was probably the most common thing we saw. So many limbs, you know, just unattached. Some of the time when people arrived with their limbs amputated or hanging by a little bit of tissue, we would send it along to the patient, to Bastion, the British military hospital, in the case that it may be viable, meaning there was a possibility of surgically reattaching the limb or appendage. But most often than not, the proximal piece of the amputated limb or the distal end of the patient's extremity was so dirty, or the vessels charred, or the extremity still attached needed to be amputated higher, and therefore reattaching the limb could not always be possible. The protocol, however, was to bag the amputated piece, label it, put it on ice, and send it with the patient when they were transferred, and let the surgeons at the higher echelon facility make that decision whether reattachment was possible or not. It is important to note that, at this tiny middle-of-nowhere place, we didn't have a medical-grade incinerator to dispose of the biohazardous waste. We just had to burn the biohazard in an open pit fire. So we would take our biohazard, including large samples of tissue, to the most distant corner of the FOB, where the burn pits were, and burn it with all the other trash. Biohazard was burnt separately, and as medical, we were responsible for burning it, 
and making sure it was, well, all the way gone. Yay. One day, we received radio to expect multiple patients due to an IED blast in our AOR, which is our area of responsibility. We had 13 medical personnel, five medics beside myself, two anesthesiologists, two nurses, two orthopaedic surgeons, and one emergency medicine doctor, who was the medical director. A mass casualty situation was considered anything that could quickly exhaust our capabilities, which, at these numbers and inability to get resupply, could be as few as four critically wounded patients at a time. On this particular day, however, we got nine seriously wounded patients all over the period of three to four hours. I'll spare you the medical and logistical details of how this all went down and fast forward to where we start to get to the paranormal aspect of this story. Let's just say it was all very hectic until everyone was stabilised and transported to Bastion. Other emergency medical persons can probably tell you that you kind of go into autopilot, just doing what needs to be done, and the mental and emotional processing happens afterwards, whilst cleaning up literally and figuratively. Me and another medic were doing the physical clean-up of one of the ORs, when, in a pile of bloody and discarded clothing, lay a human foot. In the effort to get the person stable, packed for transport and onto the helicopter, the amputated foot had been missed, and the patient transported. It was easily possible to figure out whose foot it was by reviewing the documentation, but me and this other corpsman were tired, mentally burnt out, and to be firstly honest, jaded. Besides, it had been hours. There was no way this foot had live, viable tissue anymore. It would not be able to be reattached. We threw it, along with the bloody clothing and drapery, into the biohazard bag to be burned. It was our turn to sit with the biohazard while it burned so that it didn't spread or go out too quickly. We burned it inside of a 50-gallon drum that had been cut short and air holes drilled in it to keep air flowing, thus the fire stayed hot enough to burn most of the material except metal. You had to stir it continuously so the embers moved around and stayed hot and even. The only PPE we had was a scarf covering our mouths to prevent direct inhalation of the smoke and fumes, but it probably didn't protect us from anything at all. We put everything in the bin, and my buddy lit the fire and got it going. We would usually sit and play cards, smoke cigarettes, whatever, just keep each other company while this was going on. Take turns stirring the contents once it kind of got tamped down to a reasonable level. It was usually a two to three hour job then making sure it was all the way out before we would take off elsewhere. Well, we started taking turns stirring. Usually the cloth and paper stuff would burn down first. Plastic would take the longest. Metal would remain and we would dump it with the ashes in a puncture-resistant container of some kind. Not gonna lie, I don't know what happened to it after that. We kept stirring and we noted that this foot was... not burning. We kind of joked that, thank God it's not because it would smell. I'm censoring a lot here to prevent people thinking poorly of the military and burnt-out, jaded healthcare workers everywhere. But this foot just keeps not burning. Not disintegrating, just staying there, in the coals. Intact. The skin doesn't even appear to be changing color. Two, three, then four hours goes by. We are out of cigarettes. Something was uncanny and wrong with this foot. This foot was defying natural law by not burning. The fire is hot. Standing near it to turn the embers feels like it is burning our cheeks and hands. There's no logical reason why it should be flame-resistant. It is human flesh and bone. It is starting to get dark out. Between us and the desert is just razor wire and HESCO barriers. It's dead silent. Except again, 
the uncanny yipping and calling of jackals and hyenas. The night sky in Afghanistan is gorgeous. I've never seen the stars like you can on a clear night with a new moon in Afghanistan. I would lay on top of a shipping container and stare at the sky for hours. But not this night. We were both very nervous and off-put by this foot, and we couldn't admit it to the other. We stared at the foot and the burning coal. The hairs had singed off, and the nails were blackened and curling back, but in every other way it looked totally intact. It made no sense. So we both said, fuck this, the fire is contained, it's nothing but coals and ash, let's go to bed. And so we left it, figuring by the morning it would have burned up. That night, I had a dream. In the dream, I woke up in my cot in Afghanistan, sat up, put on my flip-flops and left our tent where we sleep, walked across the open courtyard area to go into the medical tents. The lighting was silvery greyish like a very bright moonlight. I went into the medical tent and walked towards the operating areas. I went in the one on the right-hand side where my friend and I had picked up the foot. All of the medical equipment had been cleared away and it was empty and clean, with just a plain wooden chair in the middle. It was also extremely bright, although there were no lighting sources. It was just almost blindingly bright white. Well, there was some thing sitting in that wooden chair, which was facing away from me. I couldn't see what they were wearing, but they were wearing white linen clothing in the style of the local Afghani people in the area. The person or thing is barefoot, but as I note, there's only one foot. The right one is missing, and the foot that wouldn't burn was, you've guessed it, a right foot. The head of the figure in the chair was starting to turn to look to me, over the right shoulder, but it was moving dream slow, so it gave me time to be filled with a terrible feeling of terror and dread. I knew that, whatever it may be, I did not want to see the face or look into the eyes. I don't know why, but I just did not want to see it. I forced myself to wake up out of the dream before it could turn around. I sat up and went outside, but for real this time. It was that time before dawn where it was just barely, barely beginning to be light, like you knew the morning was coming, but it wasn't quite on the horizon yet. In my flip-flops and PT clothes, I slung my rifle over my shoulder and walked with a purpose over to that burn barrel, and well, sure as shit, that foot sat there, unburned in the now cool ashes. I picked it up, wrapped it in a clean bio bag, labelled it with the patient name, and while I was preparing it to go, my friend who was helping me stern the burn barrel the night before came into the space. He didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. It seemed enough that someone was taking care of it. We brought it over to the flight team first thing in the morning with instructions to drop it off at Bastion on their next round and get it to the patient or to the surgeon, or just away from here. They thought it was odd, but I just told them it had been left behind from the mass casualties the day before. Later, maybe a few days later, I told our interpreter, who is an older Afghani-American gentleman, a sort of truncated version of the story. He sat there and was thoughtful for a little while, but eventually told me, and I am paraphrasing the best I can because I am not an Afghani or Muslim, so this is my best understanding of how he explained it to me. He explained that in Islam, many Muslims believe that on Judgment Day you are full-body resurrected to stand before God and the angels and such, and thus it is a desecration to go to your death without your whole original body, including lost limbs. 
Of course, sometimes it can't be helped, but it is preferred to have all your parts, as it were, so you can be fully restored when you go on to heaven. He also told me that jinn, who are spirits of wild and empty places, like exactly where we were, were beings made of smokeless fire. They were probably rejecting the foot, which feet are also considered dirty and super unclean in Islam, and it is rude to show the bottom of your feet to people, because it is haram and possibly desecrating the fire and wild place of the jinn with the smoke from the foot. Perhaps the jinni were also protecting the patient, so that the foot could get back to the rightful owners, because, according to the Quran, jinn can be Muslim and thus be concerned for this person's soul. What he told me was pure speculation, and as I do not belong to that culture or belief system, I don't want to try and extrapolate something that isn't there or is totally off base. But what was absolutely the truth was that this foot wouldn't burn, which never happened before or again. And I dreamt of a being I couldn't look in the face while in what seemed like an in-between place. I cannot tell you the fate of the foot or of the person to whom it belonged, but I don't seem to be plagued by any kind of residual energy from it, so I like to think that it was resolved adequately. Much like a lot of your other stories, it could be nothing, or it could be something. I have even considered the possibility that the dream portion was just mental and emotional off-gassing of the trauma that I did not have time to process in the middle of the medical emergency. But it is definitely an experience that has stuck with me for over a dozen years now, and probably always will. Thank you for your time reading my story, which I have only shared to one or two other people in my life, not even the person who I experienced it with in the story. I am looking forward to maybe hearing your thoughts. I still work in healthcare in my civilian job now. I am by no means a writer or in a creative field, and I also have ADHD, so it took me a long time to finally get this on paper and get it to you. But it feels good to nail down because I struggled to adequately explain how eerie it really was. So, Paul, obviously that, that's a huge, huge story. What are your thoughts? Well, it's eerie that when you have someone who is experienced in the disposal of biohazardous material, that a foot would seem to stay intact other than being singed and the nails blackened because the temperature for a burn is anything from sort of 70 degrees upwards can give you a nasty burn and to start damaging the skin tissue and, and getting into the muscle, I think is about 125, 150 degrees. So there is no plausible explanation as to why a foot would remain undamaged in such a hot, ashened burn bin at all. Yeah, this one got to me. Again, this, this was the whole reason. I was just going to do a listener stories episode, but then I read this and I just thought, no, this, this, there's really something here. I mean, I was listening to Strange Familiars the other day and it came up the, this idea of saints. Mm. No, there, there are these stories about saints whose bodies could not be destroyed mm. for some reason or another. And I wondered about that with this. I, I, I didn't have enough time to really dig into that, but are you familiar with any cases like those? There are certain stories where we have sort of hearsay and exaggeration in regards to people being unable to burn if they've been put on a pyre or in a, in a fire they are found intact. I mean, obviously, spontaneous human combustion is a passion of mine. Sure. That alone is, is one of those incredible mysteries because they talk about the wick effect, which is, 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 cannot be conclusively proven. 
And the, the only time I've ever seen somebody try to demonstrate it, they've used accelerants and fuel in it, which is not what happens in, a, in an SHC right. case. Um, you know, and parts of the body lay undamaged almost, you know. Um, and this is the thing. Even in a cremation setting, and some people may know this, some people may not. When you are cremated, even though it can get up to like 3,000 degrees centigrade, your bones don't break down. Essentially, once the body is cremated, it is then put into some kind of like washing machine with massive ball bearings in that pound the bones to dust. Right, right, right. Fire has no limit when it can reach a certain temperature. You can see the desolation all across the world in certain situations and house fires and wildfires. It just levels everything. Fire fire seems to have a passion and a power that even to our modern eyes and, and with all the information and knowledge we have at our fingertips, sometimes it does things that just doesn't make sense. Like it can jump or it can burn underground through tree roots and pop up a mile away. It it's like water. It finds a way. And to see it to see it so stymied like this is so unnerving. Exactly. Because everything you know and all your experience tells you that this should burn. No problem. And therefore, because it doesn't, your knowledge of how this situation is supposed to go takes you to a very different place because that's not what these things do. These things burn. Yeah. And and this really, again, this coupled with the dream, I mean, the dream alone would be, all right, fine. That's, you know, it's weird. It's, you know, but people have had dreams. But when you've got something that defies everything we know about physical law, and then it's coupled with that kind of dream, like I genuinely think that this person had an encounter with some kind of gin. And obviously the gen are, are, there's a whole host of, of stories that go along with this, a lot of lore, and we, we, we wouldn't be able to scratch the surface here. That's why I want to do a separate show on it, because again, there, there's a lot there. But for those listeners who don't know, essentially, it is believed that the gen are an entire race of people who exist alongside us. Uh, mm-hmm. They're often referred to as Islamic, uh, but th- they predate Islam. Jinn were widely regarded to be existing already in pre-Islamic Arabia. So that's what, prior to the... Was it 8th century Islam uh, began? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. so it, it, it existed, these, these creatures, or legends of these creatures at the very least, existed prior to that. So they're not, they're not exactly, they're mentioned in the Quran, but that's because they existed prior to the Quran. And so I wondered, and I mentioned this to this listener when I, I emailed them back, you know, I, I wasn't sure whether I would say this on the show, but I think we're going to say it. I think the elderly gentleman they spoke to, I don't think he was right. I think he was working, I think that was a little bit like the time I went to ask a priest a question and he said, well, here, take a course on Jesus. You know, like he, he just because someone is, is, a, is a man of the cloth or, or has these beliefs doesn't mean that they are a reliable source of, of good information on them. And this to me sounds like him trying the be- as best he can to make sense out of something that, again, sort of contradicts everything he knows about the world. But I wondered, you know, they, they say that the jinn are ultimately mortal. You know, they live much longer than we do, but they do die. And the thing I said to this listener is, I wonder if they can be maimed as well. I wonder if, if when they are physical, if they can be hurt. 
Mm. But at the same time, maybe the physical reality of their bodies, even though it can be affected by forces on our side of the world, maybe they still cannot entirely be affected. So like blunt force trauma, maybe okay. But fire, not so much, possibly because, you know, they are believed in some way to be creatures of fire. Yep, absolutely. I think the easy situation with, with stories like this is to try and explain it away in utilizing belief systems that we aren't fully knowledgeable of. Sure. And if somebody tells you that in that particular culture, blue's green and, and yellow's red, you've no touch point to verify that against. You can only take what you're told. And my understanding of, of, of certain aspects of gin is that they are near enough indestructible and impervious to fire. However, they are they are weak to certain things, but I don't know what that would be because if you have an extremity that seems to be fireproof, then you would think, how in God's name has it come off? Never mind anything else. So I was thinking, like maybe again, they're still they're still vulnerable to blunt force trauma. Maybe you know, concussive forces can still have some kind of impact. Yes, you would perhaps maybe a certain type of explosive or, or like you say, blunt force trauma could cause it to, to become detached. But then again, it, it's a foot. Um, I mean, <laughs> why, why can't it burn? Well, th- that's why I think this is one of the most striking stories we've ever told on the show. Honestly, I, I like this one lives rent free in my head. And I think it's because it is so contradictory to basic understandings of how the world works. Unless, I mean, maybe someone's going to mm-hmm. reach out to us and say, hey, sometimes some people have superfoot condition. You know, I don't know. And maybe with superfoot, you are immune to certain things. It's, it's, you know, it's like at Achilles sends us a tweet and says, hey, you dicks, that was my foot, you know. <laughs> well, even firewalking isn't some special impervious skill that people are taught. You basically, if you do it at a certain speed yeah. with certain protective lotions on you can do it unscathed but it's not it's not to be recommended (laughs) yeah and it's it's not as advertised some magical mind mastery of mind over matter it's just as you say that you know there's a technique to it again this defies all understanding and i am baffled by it but also i think you know of all the stories we've told this to me signifies the most one of the, the the strongest connections to the absolutely baffling side of the world. Like this doesn't fit into any box aside from the one we've talked about, which of course is the gin, and which the, the image of that man in white, again, that's such a strong image and implies so many things that I, I can't even quite get my head around, Paul. Honestly, I'm having a hard time, having a hard time kind of explaining what it is I'm feeling, but there is this very in grand sense of, of, of being near to something much, much bigger and less comprehensible than anything else I, I've been around. Mm. It's completely baffling. Yeah. So again, if anyone out there has any suggestions or thoughts, send us a message, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Anonymous, thank you so much for submitting that. Uh, again, you have managed to really, really make a dent. Uh, I, as I mentioned in my email to you, this one I think is going to be on our minds for a really long time. And, and while we do have another Haunting of the Military episode coming up, um, with a, it, it's a very different and much more lighthearted bent, thankfully. All right. Well, on that deeply unsettling note, 
We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Listeners, before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT. That's S-H-O-U-T. To 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, Please know that we've both been where you are, and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks again to everyone who sent in their stories for our Haunting of the Military Part 2 episode. Again, if you want to send in your stories, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. The ghost story guys are Luke Greensmith, who helps us find our stories, Sarah Kent, who manages our Reddit community, Tanya Downing, who helps with editing, Joseph Camo, who helps manage our YouTube presence, Adam Lynch, who edits our video. Brennan Store is our paranormal conductor in the Ghost Story Guys. And my co-host is, of course, the one, the only, the inimitable Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? I've got the return of Ruth Roper Wild for my uh, Halloween show, which is currently out for everybody to, to check out, where we've got some brand new stories from her latest book, which has just been released, These Haunted Times 3. And then Richard Freeman comes back to explain and tell me all about what on earth the ghoul of Tajikistan is and his two expeditions on the hunt for it. Fantastic. And where can everyone find you online? Mysteries and Monsters is across all social media platforms and all podcast availability aggregators. Fabulous. I'm Largely the Truth on Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. 
And you can find my other show, Weird Together, where we look at horror movies through a sociological lens. It's not nearly as nerdy as it sounds. I mean, it's pretty nerdy, but not nearly as nerdy as it sounds. You can find that everywhere. Podcasts live on the most recent episode. Joseph and I break down the film Dark Harvest, which is a, a brand new release from David Slade, director of 30 Days of Night. And it is, uh, the movie's flawed, but there's some stuff to like about it. And we have a great time talking about it on the show. Again, that's Weird Together, everywhere. Find podcasts live. Shout out to our composer, Jerry Smith. Jerry is a film journalist and composer based out of Central California. You can find his projects Rainy Days for Ghosts and Street Witch streaming everywhere. You get your music courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings. That is, of course, the Ghost Story Guys house label. And you can find more information about that at nightharvestrecordings.com. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes or by clicking the link in the show notes. I guess that's going to do it. We'll be back in a week. But until then, into the darkness we go. Yeah. Why would anybody want to be a police officer there? There's all sorts running about. Get out there. I mean, one guy named Xander, I am gone. If you have a name that even <laughs> remotely sounds like it might belong in a horror movie, I am leaving. His name's Count what? Bye. <laughs> yeah, or somebody named after a type of tree. Yep. Later, Birch. Birch, please. <laughs> I regret nothing. Uh, well, you never know. Um, but I'm not going to be squeezing my fat ass through anything. <laughs> I, I I don't want to say I've seen your ass because that, that doesn't sound great but sounds like Godzilla's attacked actually I feel like Godzilla would come into the neighborhood and go you guys have suffered enough <laughs> uh, oh yeah if you yeah, I'll get you to do me and then figuratively of course <laughs> sorry I'm smiling there because Theo snored <laughs> I wondered um, what was going on there BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.